0: so much discussion in uh, social media and public spaces about ethics, I find kind of this at play a few times, it might be expressed in the form of a meme, where it says kind of like, if you eat shrimp, uh, and you know that in Leviticus 11 it says you should not eat shrimp, then you should not kind of claim any Bible verse for any ethic over my life, because you're a hypocrite, so I'm just going to choose other parts that I'm not going to read as well. I see that happen time and time again, and it could be a case of we just don't understand the laws and their application. For instance, the earring that I'm wearing in my ear, there's a part in Exodus that says I shouldn't do that unless I'm a slave. Uh, I think it's actually got more to do with the fact that we don't understand the covenants. That's a technical word. Uh, It means the way that we relate to God or the way that He relates to us kind of like a marriage. We read in, um, in the first passage about how God has been a husband to Israel in the covenant relationship of marriage between God and Israel. There were ways that they were to relate to one another. And I think when it comes time for people looking at Scripture, they'll rip pieces out, and maybe even as Christians we do that at times, we might not be understanding the way that God has set up His relationship with us, particularly in the new covenant, which is stressed so much in this passage. And so, it's my privilege today to to work through Hebrews 8, that we might understand the beauty of this new covenant, this new way of God relating to us, of dealing with the problems of the old and particularly the problems of our heart and that we might enjoy Him as our God and us being His people. Last week, I um, preached on uh, chapter 7 and I said that we need a priest. Uh, and as funny as that sounded, I showed how Jesus speaks, um, I didn't speak at this congregation, that's why I'm giving the summary, um, how Jesus um, addresses our greatest need, that of sinfulness, and, and how he now sits at the right hand of the Father, which is how this passage starts. Not, not vegging after kind of the work's been done, and he's kind of just hoping that the Christians pull up their socks and you know, sort themselves out and meet him at the end. No, 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 but he is living always, from chapter 7, to intercede for us. There He is at the right hand of Father, living to intercede for us. He prays for you. He delights in you. He is at work in you by His Spirit. That is incredible, is it not? And now we look into this this passage to reflect on how His priesthood actually flows out into the covenant, that way that we relate to God. And so keep your Bibles open, chapter 8. And as we have started in that verse 1, that kind of cosmic perspective of there is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, we are taken into the very throne room of God, as it were, the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, that is the very presence of God. And throughout Hebrews, the writer is, is laboring what it means to come into and have confidence in appearing in the very presence of God. I think it's appropriate that we realize that we can't just walk up to God and give Him a high five. He's God. He's the guy that kind of stirred up the oceans. And then there's us. But while we can't just kind of disrespectfully high five Him on our own terms, we are able to enter into His very presence because of what Jesus has done. That is a joy and a privilege and one that we so often underappreciate. But the reason that we can do that is because of the New Covenant. And before we get into particularly the promises of the New Covenant, as, uh, as he picks up, the author picks up on the promises from the Old Testament, looking into what we have now, uh, we have also laid out for us the problem under the Old Covenant. Now, it's helpful for us to understand the connection between the problem and the promise that we might appreciate what we've been brought into. The problem with the old was not necessarily just with, because it was old, we often love kind of hating on the old, uh, the problem was because of our hearts, the problem was us. So, if you read in, in verse 9 or verse 8, it says, God found fault with the people or even into verse 9 in the quote from Jeremiah, they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And the result of the old covenant failure, was as stark as, end of verse 9, I turned away from them. The God of grace turned away from them. And as cold and as harsh as that sound, this little sketch outlines the whole drama of the Old Testament. For if the covenant was like a marriage, you know, we've seen in Jeremiah how God says, as a husband, I loved you. And if we look at, say, another prophet, Hosea, who points to kind of the, the, the marriage between Israel and God, that, that covenant relationship. How is Israel's side portrayed? As a prostitute, as someone who keeps whoring themselves out to other gods and other idols. And, and as a groom, how is God to respond to that? Oh, don't worry, she's right, it's all good. Or should he be, be angry? Well, the whole Old Testament drama flows out with God's constant grace and love. His warnings because He does love them and want them to come back. And even His judgment that they might see the error of their ways. And yet, does any of this change their heart condition? Nope. And so, in the end, God turned away from them in the hope that they might return but yet he didn't abandon his faithfulness to his promises from the very beginning. See, the problem is, if we look back at chapter 7, verse 18, something I skipped over when I was preaching chapter 7 as we focus on the priest, the former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. If the problem is our heart, laws are not going to fix that what do lords do they only say no and condemn imagine for instance you love speeding it's a bit of a lame example but if you've got a really fast car Ferrari and you just love to speed around town in fact on my walk from Urco to Newtown I almost got run over by a tradie running through a red light but nonetheless if you love kind of just doing that stuff and driving however you like what's a law going to do well it's going to give you a fine <laughs> Um, you're going to get pulled over by the cops. But if that's what you love to do, that's not going to curb your behaviour, unless you're locked up, maybe. The problem with the law is it didn't actually change their behaviour. It just condemned them. It had no power to transform them. It was weak in that regard. And so the Old Covenant failed because the people didn't love God. As much as they professed they loved God, It was evident in their prostituting themselves out to to worshipping other gods and other idols and even themselves well ahead of worshipping God. All that was revealed and the thing is, is our hearts are no different left to our own devices. So it's easy to hate on kind of how silly the Hebrews were, how foolish they were, except that we realise we have the same human condition, we have the same hearts. And that whole drama of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, all climaxes in this, the resolution, the new covenant, a new way that God would relate to us that dealt with our problem permanently, not just with the band-aid of religion. The thing was, it was all a shadow. If we see in the beginning of chapter 8, the Old Testament system the, the sanctuary, the temple is described as a copy of the heavenly one, a shadow of the real one. You kind of know how shadows work. You look at the shadow and you kind of keep tracing the shadow until you get to the object and you can even see the line of sight for the light. We are on the other side of that object now, for when you're in the shadow, the object is just a silhouette. But when you look on the other side and you see what the light is shining on, you see what the shadow was pointing towards. And we see, friends, the object, the center of the whole drama of the relationship between God and humanity, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We get to see the fullness of what the whole Old Testament, what that shadow was pointing to. And you can see the pivot in verse 6, where it says, But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the Old Testament priest's, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. That is to say, a little bit convoluted, that Jesus is superior priest and with that superior priesthood comes a superior covenant, a way that we might relate to God. And that is all based on, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Not on slightly modified conditions and terms, but on better promises. And we need those promises. For these are promises that we can build our life on. Promises that escape the religious bind that expose our hearts and condemn us. Promises that are anything but weak, instead are powerful to perfect. And promises that will bring you into the true tabernacle, the very presence of God. Those promises are at the end of that passage that quoted from Jeremiah. And what I find absolutely fascinating is to talk about these promises of the New Covenant. He doesn't just go straight to Jesus, he actually says, for all time we've been heading towards this. I'm going to quote something from the Old Testament that was pointing towards what you now have. That was, it wasn't kind of the Old Covenant failed and God said, oh man, I'm going to have to come up with plan B. No, all along things were pointing towards these promises, And we read them from verse 10. This is the covenant, quoting from Jeremiah, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That is the new covenant that we have been brought into because of Christ's blood shed for us. It's worth looking into the richness and the beauty of these promises that we might live in those promises because they're available to us. I am want to do them in reverse order, forgiveness, intimacy with God and hearts for God, just because I think there's some stuff in hearts for God that I want to drill into a little bit more. But when you start with kind of forgiveness, you're kind of like, ah, oh, it's so cliched. I mean, I hear I'm at church again, they're banging on about forgiveness of sins. <laughs> I hope we bang on it all day long because it is the good news of Jesus that we build our lives upon, that we are forgiven of our sins. You know when you kind of bump into someone in the, in the bus and you kind of say, oh, sorry, and they say, don't worry about it. That's not how you practice forgiveness of sins. That's not real forgiveness. That's not just don't worry about it. When we look at the covenantal failure of the Old Testament, when you see kind of how Israel prostituted themselves out and how God responded time and time again in grace and forgiveness to open up a new opportunity for them to come back, when you have been wronged and you just want to righteously say, you screwed up, you wronged me, I'm right, you're wrong." And when you stop in that moment and say, I think God's calling me to forgive that person. When you feel the weight of that, you get why this is good news. You get who you are before God and what he needs to do to bring you into his presence. And he's made forgiveness of sins available in the death of Christ. It is the good news which we build our life on. It is the access that we have to our Father. Because when we look in that very throne room of God at the Father, we see sitting next to Him is the Son with holes in His hands and His feet put there because of His love for you and the forgiveness He's given you. Have you received this promise? Not just with your head but with your heart. I think about the parable of the debt collector who um, who was forgiven or forgiven the debt, a great huge debt and then goes out to kind of you know squabble over little debts that, owed, that he was owed, not actually returning the favour. It makes me think about am I practising out the forgiveness that I've shown because it might just show me how far I've understood and appreciated and lived in the forgiveness of God it's really hard stuff to forgive but every time I find it incredibly hard to practice forgiveness I'm taken back to the good news of Jesus and what I've received in him that is the first and necessary promise to give us access to the father the second promise is, is intimacy with God it's put like this Uh, through verse uh, 10 halfway through Uh, I will be their God and they will be my people and you kind of get how how much God was longing for that because he's always been their God and he's longed for them to be his people but they keep turning away from him no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's such an expansive promise that we would get to know God, call Him our God, call Him Father, and that He would delight in us as His children. How incredible is that? But the expansiveness of this promise is that no longer will we need to say, you should know the Lord, because they know them already, know more already. My heart's desire is that as much as I've found good news in Jesus, is that everyone in Newtown and Erskineville and our city of Sydney and in the whole world would would know Jesus and I wouldn't need to teach them. While we live in the tension of some of us enjoying what we have in Christ and not all, I will keep on teaching. I will keep on sharing. I will keep on living out the love I've seen in Christ. It touches on something I used to bang on about as a youth pastor See, when I was a youth pastor back in Roseville, I was speaking to kids who had grown up in Christian families, kids who would go to private schools and go to chapel all the time. Not all of them, but there was kind of there was a lot of that. And I would say to them, what's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God? Hmm. <laughs> what do you think the difference is? Knowing about God versus knowing God. I'll draw an illustration from C.S. Lewis, who writes of The Adventures of Eustace and the Dawn Treader, And I I, I find this, we've used this example before, but it's so good. There's there's Eustace, this this punk kid, who gives me hope, really, as, you know, there's a punk kid, and I'm seeing my punk children take on what I've, anyway. (laughs) While his cousins, um, you know, Lucy and Edmund, are are big fans of Aslan, there's Eustace doing his own thing. And in his own thing, he discovers a dragon's lair, and he's like, I'll loot it, it'll be my treasure. Great idea, Eustace. He becomes a dragon as he does that, We're in Fantasyland which is kind of C.S. Lewis's cheeky take on you become what you worship, so be careful what you worship. But he's eventually saved by a huge lion who, who offers to undress him. And as Aslan's claws rip into him, the undragoning becomes a radical transformation and leaves Eustace humble and beautiful. But here's, here's the, the crux of it. As he discusses this transformation, one that he barely understands, he asks his cousins, Who is this Aslan? Do you know him? Edmund, the brother, who of course knows Aslan, reverses the question. He says, he knows me. Herein lies the heart of intimacy on offer. God knows me. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that he knows me warts and all. I don't need to try and put up some kind of religious facade before God. Because he knows me to the very depths of my soul and still forgives me, still loves me, still invests in me. We live in the tension of this promise. We live in the joy of being known by God and basking in his glory, in his love, in his grace, in his transformation. And we long for the day when we don't need to say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know him. I was just really touched by hearing how a number of people went to spend time with Naomi last week after church because she couldn't be here. They took church to her, that she might have a tangible expression of God knowing her, of loving her. We often fail in all kinds of ways to truly live this out. And yet we are called to the intimacy of of being known by God and enjoying that together. The third promise is that he will put his laws in our minds and write them on our hearts. I want to dig into this one a little bit because I just find it fascinating. Like, Like what laws is he writing on my heart's? Like all six hundred and thirteen commands of the Old Testament? And, and and as he writes them on my heart, am I just the fact that I'm not doing the things that he wants me to do, am I not in this new covenant? Paul wrestles with that in Romans seven, like I I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I should do. Ah, it's a mess. <laughs> we kind of get the disordered nature of our hearts. So what is he doing in our heart? Well, one thing's clear. At the very end of the passage, it's clear that the old covenant is now obsolete. There is not one single commandment in the Old Testament that directly applies to you anymore. We live in the New Covenant. But before you start ripping out the whole Old Testament, of which some Christians have tried to advocate for, let us remind ourselves that this is one grand story of how God relates to us in our human condition. For we see the character of God revealed in the Old Testament. We see the backdrop, that shadow that helps put in relief and beauty what we have in the New Covenant. So how do we make sense of the Old Covenant and the New, what we make of reading the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, what stands between the Old and the New is, of course, Jesus. And someone explained to me a while ago with with this helpful picture, I love physics. Anyone else love physics? Don't worry about that. Um, Here is a prism that refracts light into all its beautiful colours. And if the Old Testament's kind of that black and white version, very clear, very religious, what we have in Jesus is one who shows us the beauty and the richness of what God wants for us in our life. If you want to understand what the Old Testament is saying, then look to Jesus as He interprets it, as He shows us how to live. We see this kind of play out in maybe the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is something like, You've heard it said, do not murder. And you're kind of like, oh yeah, that's one of the 613 commands of the Old Testament. But he says to you, he says, "But you should know that I call you not to be angry, not to call a brother foolish. Oh, he's taking it right to the heart, he's radicalizing it. You want to know what it means to practice that Old Testament law? Well, look to Jesus and look at how he interprets it. Do not commit adultery. Yes, we know that one from the Old Testament too. Jesus says, do not look at a woman lustfully. See, he shows us the real depth of our heart problem, but also casts for us a beautiful vision of a world where people wouldn't look at each other lustfully, where there would be no shame. And as much as we want that, and as much as we're crushed by it, Jesus stands there to give us grace and to transform our desires and our hearts for him. Is it not a beautiful picture of how the whole scriptures work together? of how God is for us from eternity to eternity. I've been asked a few times over the last month uh, as a pastor and it's from people in the community, Mike, what do you make of Israel And Every time that question comes up, I just don't know what landmines I'm going to tread on, where people are coming from, what the understanding of Christianity and religion is. But rather than pick up some Leviticus verse and sort of just apply haphazardly kind of laws, what I want them to see is Jesus. I don't think it came out very clearly in that post from Israel Folau. I take them to 1 Corinthians and I talk about, which is one of the passages that, that Israel uh, sort of paraphrases, I say the Corinthian church was an absolute mess. The ethics that they were living out made the pagans look pious. But Paul addresses them as a church, a very messy church, but a church. And said so th- this vice list, this kind of things I'm listing here, that's what used to define you. But you know what defines you now? That you've been washed, that you've been clean, that you've been shown grace. People don't know what to make, how to make sense of that kind of religion because it's not really religion. It's personal. And that's the starting point for understanding the whole scripture. They might see Jesus first and then explore his claim upon them, his call to obedience, to take up the cross. None of that makes any sense until they first see Jesus. But what does it mean that he writes all this on our hearts? My heart's still wayward. What do I make of that? I think of it like a like a pitching, a pitch, not a pitching, a pitchfork. One of the, what is that what it's called? The one that kind of bing and kind of makes a little noise? Is that, that's cool. Pitching fork. Excellent. Very different to a pitchfork. Thank you. I knew I'd get it wrong. Whew danger I think that because I see Jesus in perfect pitch I see the beautiful vision of his life glorifying his father and now my heart having seen the love of Christ having experienced the love of Christ now sees when it's in and out of resonance with Jesus so there's plenty of times when my heart is wayward and it, I don't follow naturally kind of the desires that God puts before me but I see where I'm out of resonance and I want to be back in resonance. He's writing these on my hearts that I might see Jesus more clearly and become more like him. And you know what? As he writes his words of power on my life, he doesn't just say, oh Mike, pull your socks up. He doesn't just show me the error of my ways. He invests in me with his Holy Spirit that he might give me God's power in my life to transform me all under the umbrella of being soaked in his love and grace so that when I do fail I need not be ashamed I need to come back to my father and say I see where I'm out of resonance here your Holy Spirit's at work convicting me would you give me the power to keep transforming to keep living for you and thank you for your grace that you keep forgiving me that I'm still a child of you this is the glory of the new covenant, available to all of us because of Jesus. And when it comes to heart stuff, I can't help but think that we live in a world that kind of like loves to live out our heart. You know, that everyone has a gospel written on their heart. It seems it's just that it's not the same gospel as Jesus Christ. What's interesting is um, Matt Aroney put me put me onto Charles Taylor who's written this just epic book called The Secular Age, and he traces out how we've, kind of, we've gone in a, through a season of living in some kind of Christendom, so, a society very shaped by Christian values, but now how we live in a very secular post-Christian age that still loves kind of like the heart dynamic stuff, but just has left the gospel behind. Charles Taylor, this, this uh, social commentator, philosopher, Christian theologian, says that actually the reason we've landed in this kind of live out your heart song kind of thing is because of Christianity is because of this focus on the heart it's just that we've left God behind and i might just share some insights because in the end he shows me something very cutting that helps us take helps take us back to the center of this new covenant he traces out three things that are in play that have been in play for a long time. Firstly, as a Christian, kind of the, the idea of living a disciplined personal life. So, as I give my heart to Jesus, to kind of use that uh, sort of cliched phrase, I want to examine my heart. I want to have that, that, that inner devotional life, that kind of inner personal life that lives in the experience of, of kind of being loved by God, that personal relationship I have with Jesus. And, I, and as I live that out, I want to see others also live out that kind of Christian life. In a, in a well-ordered society even. I mean, we get to sort of play with that in, in sort of church as a, as a, as a micro-society, where we're actually aided by, by the fact that we're all living out the same values, all trying to live for Jesus. And we want that for kind of all of society in a way. And there's been all kinds of ventures in the past. Uh, Geneva would be a good example where Calvin ordered society based on Christian values. And as we do all of those things, we realise we keep falling short. And we need to come back to God, who gives us grace and takes us back into a devoted, personal life, a well-ordered society, and we need for God again. The problem is, is we got really good at it. <laughs> and eventually we found some kind of equilibrium where we could find the, sort of, the secrets of inner motivation that led to a flourishing life, and we didn't need God anymore. So instead of glorifying God as our primary goal, a well-ordered society, A flourishing life that became the goal we worked out whatever motivation we needed to get there but this is when he gets really cutting he writes we've grown confident that people like us successful well-behaved people in our well-ordered society deserve god's grace the thing is is we're really good at trying to be a christian at least presenting ourselves as Christian. And when we do that, when we become very successful at that, we think we deserve God's grace. And in the end, we kind of cut him out of the picture. The thing is, is we've taken the new covenant and we've made it old. We've turned it into a religion. We find all kinds of creative ways to screw this up. But you know what? The new covenant cannot be thwarted. Because it's based on better promises. It's not based on our performance. It's based on the work and person of Jesus Christ. So that when we find a new creative way to screw it up, there is Jesus. The basis of our relationship with God. Eager to forgive, to show mercy, and to show us we're out of resonance and keep transforming us. Religion is really quick to shame and condemn. What we have in the new covenant, what we have in Jesus, is true love, is the power to transform. And we have the joy of living that out in the ups and downs of our crazy inward desires, all being transformed for his glory. What a privilege and a pleasure to do this in fellowship with one another. Amen.